Hello listeners. Before you start this episode, here's just a quick note to explain why it's so long. So we ended up with a bit of a quandary this month. We were originally planning to use this episode to do our big satirical summer reading challenge roundup. For new listeners, this was a campaign that we ran through July and August in which we invited regular listeners to read up to three recently published satirical novels on the understanding that we'd talk about them. However, between now and then, a fantastic opportunity dropped in our lap to discuss another satirical topic with the perfect guest. As you'll hear, this interview is great and it'd be a real shame not to share it straight away. But we also feel we owe it to regular listeners who read all of those novels not to put off our roundup any longer. So essentially, what you have here is two episodes worth of content. Why not release them in two parts, you might justifiably wonder. Well, the main reason is that as you'll hear, the interview actually ends up naturally touching on one of the novels from our summer challenge. There's also a less important reason about how Anchor records metrics, but don't worry about that. If you'd like to enjoy this in two parts, the roundup starts at around one hour 20 minutes so you can always pause it then and return at your leisure or listen however you like we can't control you we hope that doesn't sound overly self-indulgent but let's face it this is a massive treat two episodes of content for the price of one and yes they are both free and with that i'll leave you to enjoy the episode adam what is tiktok TikTok, A Tale for Two, is a two-player cooperative adventure game that's all about communication. Players have to unravel a narrative together, talk to each other about what they're doing and what they can see in order to solve puzzles. TikTok is played on two devices, either mobile, tablet or computer. That doesn't sound like what I mean. I'll just have a look for myself. TikTok was a production model adopted in 2007 by chip manufacturer Intel. Under this model, every microarchitecture change, TOC, was followed by a die shrink of the process technology, TIC. It was replaced by the process architecture optimization. No, I don't think that's right either. Try it, you have another look. Um, TikTok. Tommy Fan, a successful detective novelist, comes home one evening to find a small rag doll on his doorstep. That night, with the popping of two stitches, something terrifying will emerge to tear apart the fabric of Tommy's reality and his life. Do you like horror and suspense but are looking for something light and humorous in the genre? Did you just finish a massive heavy novel and you need a quick getaway? Give TikTok a try. It's clever, unusual and often hilarious. You may or may not like it but it doesn't hurt to give it a try. That's such a weird way to pitch a book, isn't it? You may or may not like it. Um, And also, it's a weird way to express being dead, isn't it? It's tore apart the fabric of my reality and my life. (laughs) That thing is also true of every single book, isn't it? You may or may not like it, but does it hurt to give it a try? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, it does. Anyway, I see what's happened. Instead of doing proper research, we've just Googled the words TikTok and got irrelevant, unhelpful definitions. And one of those is actually a book, TikTok, by Dean Koontz, acknowledged as America's most popular suspense novelist in The Rolling Stone. A book TikTok. Like a book talk. Book talk. Book talk. Book talk. That sounds like something worth discussing. It does. podcast is this this podcast where we're going to talk about book talks is the podcast that is smith and wall talk about satire in which i adam smith and i joe wall talk about the form function future and history of satire tiktok yeah <laughs> so that's what you're listening to yeah that's what that's, <laughs> we can all agree on that yeah so uh, you may like we... it you may not like it but does it hurt does to it try? really hurt to give it a try <laughs> Did you just finish a massive heavy podcast and you need a quick getaway? Give Smith and War a try. (laughs) Anyway, yes, uh, we're going to talk about book reviews and TikTok. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk to our friend, 
A recurring friend. A recurring friend. <laughs> <laughs> Have you got many recurring friends? That sounds like, no, I've got it sounds like an infection. I've got some it? friends who recur every day. <laughs> yeah. Our friend, Lee Stein. Novelist, satirist, commentator. And author of the hugely satirical self-care, There's... subversively satirical pandemic poetry collection, What to Miss When, and before that... Such other novels as Land of Enchantment and The Fallback Plan. That's right. Um, and then we're going to uh, debrief one another and also you, the listener, on our recent satirical summer reading challenge in which we encourage you, the you, the listener, to read between one and three recent novels, all of which have been badged by reviewers as satirical. What were those books? <laughs> those books were The Echo Chamber by John Boyne, Vladimir by Julia May Jones, and what was the other one? The Plot, but I can't remember who it was by. Jean Hanf Karelitz. Oh, that's right, yeah. yeah. Um, so the rationale for the selection of those texts was they're all been described as satirical, but but do you know something? What's that? I'm not sure they are satirical, all of them. Hmm. And that's something we can talk about later at the end of the podcast. Are they satire or are they not? And if not, why are these reviews saying that they are? It's almost like these reviews haven't spent several hours every month for the last 43 months talking about what satire is. Are you saying you think that having a podcast makes you more qualified to review these books than other people? You fucking elitist piece <laughs> of shit. Well, it's not elitist though, is it? Because having a podcast doesn't... Anyone can have a podcast. That's true. Yeah, yeah we just, are living just, proof of that. Yeah. <laughs> it just happens that we're also scholarly sources <laughs> have a podcast. Yeah. Um, are, you, are you a valid source? But it's interesting, isn't it? So in terms of like our published output, we, I've, I have written about satire in peer review mm-hmm. outlets. Um, but the claim that I'm making there is that, uh, that we have an expertise in it because we've thought about it a lot. Mm. That could be true of anybody. Yeah. So... If someone just spent 43 hours talking about satire, would they then be a more credible source or equally credible source as someone like, for example, Andrew Bricker, who we had on the podcast a few months ago? Um, are you asking me if you're better than Andrew Bricker? Not even remotely. Okay, no. although, good. Do you know, I don't put me in that position. You know Andrew no, because you wouldn't like the answer. Mm. <laughs> Libel and Lampoon. Yes, I do yeah. know. Do you know who yeah. reviewed that for... Uh, Literary, Oxford Literary Studies um, review. Was it you? It was me, yeah. Yeah, so I, well so done. I, so yes, very good. But I didn't get. I didn't. I wasn't asked to review it because of the mm. podcast. <laughs> no. No. Okay. Um. So that's book reviews, and they can happen in all kinds of different ways, can't mm-hmm. they? Well, I mean, would you say like a Goodreads review is a book review? In a way. In a good way. In a way, well, in the sense that. Um, Reading is a subjective experience, mm. isn't it? And if you want to share the subjective experience that you had, yeah. then Goodreads is a great forum for that because the reviews are kind of like. Actually, I was looking at some Goodre- Goodreads reviews today. I like looking at Goodreads um, reviews for the books that we're about to talk about, mm. just because I was looking to see if anyone you find anything about really them. funny or stupid. Not, <laughs> not especially. But I was what the reason I was looking is just to see if the people's subjective response mm. was to notice that this, these were satirical or not. Right. Um, and what I found is that the vast majority of reviews I looked at were just the plot summaries. Right. Like, it's people saying, in this book, George Cleverly does this, this, and this. Yeah, It's yeah. a good book. Or, I found it dense. My my Gen Z goes on Goodreads and gives everything she reads a star rating. Mm-hmm. Um, she doesn't write reviews. I think she does it partly as a way to, like, log what she's read. Mm. Um but then there was a book that we all read on holiday and she went to see what they said about it on Goodreads and it was like, they were bang wrong. Really? I'll tell you, tell you yeah. that, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, they, they have a weight, though, book, possibly more than others. Goodreads. Because, yeah, yeah, because they, they affect the market, don't they? Yeah, they destroyed that uh, Alex Astor's light did, lark, yeah. didn't they? They did. Big time. Um, yeah, so Goodreads has some clout out there, but what has 
This sounds like a riddle. What has even more clout in terms of the publishing market um, and Gen Z, etc., than Goodreads? TikTok. Yes. BookTok. And, uh, BookTok on TikTok, yeah. And as mm. we've established, that is um, a production model adopted in 2007. <laughs> no, it's not. What? What is TikTok? It, so it is, it's, a, it's a social media platform where you share or watch short video, short clips. Mm. Um, and I gather the more you look at it, the more it finds things to show you. Yeah, so it's called an algorithm, isn't for it? For a long time, I couldn't understand. Yeah, it is. <laughs> That's one of our primo subscribers, algorithm. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, no, um, the, uh, uh, I couldn't understand how it was different from, for example, Snapchat. Which where you watch a short video that disappears. Although mm. Snapchat's evolved now, hasn't it? And it's like looking at a little avatar of yourself on a map and sh- and an instant. Well, I think it was always that as well. Mm. But originally, <laughs> we're like in two thousand. You're not supposed to just go look at the avatar of yourself. It's supposed to be so you can see where everyone else is. Well, isn't but it? that oh, I'm still in York. But I don't remember Started. in two thousand and fourteen that when I remember people first had Snapchat, it was more yeah, like they didn't you have can the map send thing a little then. video of yeah. something funny and it deletes itself. Yeah. Um, but then you can send videos that delete on all platforms now, can't you? You can yeah. get on WhatsApp and it's things. It's great so. for cyberbullying. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Um, Obviously, an absolute boon for me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or TikTok is like uh, YouTube on steroids. It's like everything's much yeah. faster and speed, but I, yeah. I don't know. And, and so it contains like some funny, quirky little videos, mm. some little skits and sketches, and some like... Um, Spoken word essays, doesn't yeah, it? and it's owned by the Chinese government. Who, yes, uh, mine all the data. That's right. Yeah, every, so it's lovely. Click. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and so one, we do know what TikTok is, really, don't we? What we was do. the point of everything that just went before? <laughs> Making a point about so how you got to do research. Affected. Yeah. Um, so whimsical. But one we? corner of TikTok is all about books. Yeah, and that's called TikBook. TikBook. <laughs> TikBook has been having a massive effect on the publishing industry. Yeah. So there's like TikTok. TikTok book talk sections in Waterstones and uh, people who were out of print have been mm. come back into print, exploded back into print because people are making book talk videos about their books. Yes. So that's what book talk is. Yeah. Yeah. Are you on TikTok? Uh, no, I'm not, actually. No, I'm uh, not on TikTok either. Yeah. If you were on TikTok, what would you do on it? It's difficult for us, isn't it? Yeah. I, I, I realise that this is quite ironic given that we do this podcast <laughs> yeah but you've got to be quite careful about what you put out there so yeah. there, there are sometimes i will make funny videos about mm. topical things or uh, observational comedy and mm. i'll put them on whatsapp to select yeah friends some of that content i do sometimes think this would go crazy if i put it on tiktok like this would be really popular he oh, says right, modestly. Yeah, okay. Like, for example, I once made a video... You send those to other people. I once made the a video... Yeah. <laughs> obviously, yeah. <laughs> no, there's one time where I made a video about what it's like to teach online during the pandemic. Oh, yes, I remember that, actually. And yeah. uh, everyone was saying, like, Forgot, you've got to put this on TikTok. Got to do stand-up. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, no way, no way. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. But what, so you, if all else being equal, if you could get away with it, would you do stuff like that? I think so, yeah. Or, or like um, little explainers and things. Mm. Uh, there has been times when we, I've been teaching and you, there's, a, there's for whatever reason, the lecturers, somehow you have to quickly and concisely explain something in a pithy and, mm. and I hate to say it, but relatable way. Mm-hmm. And I find myself nowadays thinking, that would make a good TikTok. Right, like, yeah. No, and then you could use it, couldn't you? You could just put your TikTok on the screen yeah. of the seminar and just go away. <laughs> yeah. Everyone would be happy with that. Like 15 seconds yeah. explain what parody is or something yeah. like that. Yeah. 
might do that actually. Yeah, could be a nice little learner. That sounds sounds like a good yeah. Idea. What about you? What would you do on TikTok? I, I think I'd just do like um, impressions of all the different Real Housewives or mm, or Below course. Deck or something. You That's, do impressions. Um, yeah, and, and as we go on to talk to Lee about, like, you don't have to really put any effort in. So I could just like put a yellow towel on my head and be like. I am a strong woman. I can't believe you're saying I'm not a strong woman. As a strong woman, I am not going to apologise for having opinions. And I will never apologise for having a voice because I am a strong woman. I've been watching a lot of Real House. The thing is, with my TikTok, I'd be the only one who wanted to watch it. Yeah, so maybe I'd do that. Or I'd, I'd come on as each different housewife or below deck or something. I'd be like, I'm so excited. Yeah. Yeah, I think you should do that. I mean, that's harmless, isn't it? Yeah, well, yeah, it's harmless, but it's also appealless. I think. So you would do little explainers of what satire is, and I would mm. just pretend to be all of the housewives. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Well, it's good to have a backup plan, isn't it? Mm. Uh, but so, I mean, it would be it would be really ironic, wouldn't it, if after having this conversation, we both went away and got TikTok accounts and did all of those things, wouldn't it? It would be ironic. Yeah. So. That's, so should we talk about irony? Let's talk about irony. Yeah. It's a perfect segue. Yeah. Yeah. I know, that's why I fucking did it. <laughs> so as listeners may have gathered, our old friend Lee Stein has been in touch with us and been telling us about a little bit of a mission that she's been on. She describes it as an experiment and it involves TikTok slash BookTok. Mm. And uh, she started talking... Just call it BookTok. BookTok. And uh, she started talking to us about it because all of her experiments are about satire. Mm. Yeah, and the question also of what's happened to irony, like, uh, do people still get it and what happens if they just completely miss it? So should we give the listeners a little flavour of the mm. kind of content that Lee's been putting out there? Nice. Um, here we go. Social media has a kind of flattening effect about how we talk about anything at all. I've noticed that the tendency to take works of art very earnestly, sincerely, and literally getting worse. It's harder and harder to pick up on irony. For example, my year of rest and relaxation, I've seen videos on BookTok talking about mental health representation in this novel. This book is a satire. Talking about my year of rest and relaxation as if it's a true representation of clinical depression and contemporary literature is like saying American Psycho does a good job of showing how an obsession with a regimented skincare routine leads someone to become a sociopathic murderer. Both of these novels are satires of narcissism and excess in American culture. What I love about what Lee is she is basically correcting people, a lot of people, on when they get things wrong mm. about irony. But satire. so gracefully. But she does it yeah. so gracefully and politely and like... The, and with this, this sort of slight air of incredulity that anybody would yeah. think any of that. I mean, if you yeah. watch the video, which everyone should, you can see she's like smiling politely. She's friendly. She's like, yeah. I wouldn't want you to fall into the trap of thinking these two things are the same. Yeah. Um, I'm looking yeah. at the comments underneath it. There are some like, um, how would someone not on the internet just reading the book know it's not a memoir, mm. which we're going to talk about, aren't we? Mm. But it seems like quite a few seem to have been... Um, seem to have found that useful don't yeah, they because yeah, they're yeah. saying like oh it, it is a satire um and people need to understand and also indeed people should be taught satire in school i think so yeah well that, that's what they're saying <laughs> yeah um yeah, it's like the one where she explains the difference between uh, a review on tiktok and a review in something like the new yorker yeah and the comments on that are like oh wow that is really helpful actually thank mm. you yeah <laughs> so, yeah so she's good yeah, so before we play the interview with lee i think we should just do a quick talk about what irony is and about the different types of irony um, and I also thought to spice up this little info dump, info dump a little bit, I could name a type of irony and then you could give us an example off the top of your head. I'll try. Okay. 
So the OED definition, if you are going to do definitions for research, the Oxford mm. English Dictionary is a good place to start. It says that irony <laughs> says the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite, typically for humorous effect or emphatic uh, effect. In earlier use, it means uh, the use of language to imply condemnation or contempt. In later use, more generally, a manner, a style, attitude, suggestive of this kind of expression. But I think generally it's saying one thing when you mean another. Often, yeah. Um, yeah, uh, often. But yeah, there are these different types of irony. So one type of irony is situational irony. So in situational irony, you have a discrepancy between expected results and actual results. Like uh, rain on your wedding day. I suppose so, yeah. If you expected it not to rain and then it did. That would be ironic, yeah. So. But no, it wouldn't, would it? Because it would only be ironic <laughs> if you expected no rain and you kind of... There's got to be more to it than that, hasn't I think it? So. Than just expecting the rain yeah. and then it. Because why? I need to understand why you expected it not to rain. Yeah, that's unreasonable. Yeah. Any other examples? Um, like uh, like if you'd already paid, but then you got a free ride. A free ride. A free ride when you've already paid. Yeah. I yeah, guess... a free ride when you've already paid. Yeah, I guess so. Any other examples? Um, well, like if somebody gave you some really good advice and you didn't take it. Mm. Good advice that you just you just for whatever reason you just didn't take. Good advice that you just didn't take. I think less so that one. I don't see how that's ironic. That's just you just need cause... more, don't you? Yeah. You need you need to not take it, and then what is the consequence yeah. of that? And yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but okay. Uh, how's about um, <laughs> let's imagine a scenario in which you're already running late. Mm-hmm. You, you you're really cutting it fine. You've left the house too late. You're hurrying to work. And then there's a traffic jam. Mm-hmm. A traffic jam when you are just to, like you're already late. It's not. Irony. And there's a traffic jam. No. No, but you you're already late. Yeah. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. Okay. And then there's a traffic jam. Yeah. So that so, would so be a traffic jam when you're already late. Is so? Isn't it ironic? I don't think so. Oh. I don't think so. Okay. So situation irony would be like a fire station that burnt down. But the examples you've given of, or that we've just talked about, rain on your wedding day, a free ride when you've repaid, good advice mm. you just didn't take, a traffic jam when you're already late. A traffic jam when you're already late would only be ironic if you'd gone massively out of your way on a weird route, maybe paid, it was a toll road as well, because you thought there'd be a traffic jam on your way mm. to normal work, and then there was a traffic jam on that one. Maybe that would be ironic, isn't it ironic? That would be ironic? ironic when you think about it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think, yeah. yeah. Any other ones? It's really too ironic, you know, I really do think. Um, Like, once I um, went for a cigarette break and there was a no-smoking sign in the place where I wanted to have the cigarette break. A no-smoking sign on your cigarette break? Yeah. Uh, But that was because I went to the no-smoking area, so I don't know if that's... It's not ironic. No, it's not ironic, is it? Okay, let's say you really... Imagine a scenario, you've got something you need to cut. Mm -hmm. Something you need to to cut or carve... Mm -hmm. You you need. I mean, what would you use for that? Probably ten thousand spoons. Well, you probably would, wouldn't <laughs> no, you? No, yeah. But let's you, say you need, you need a, knife, a knife. You need knife. And what you've got is ten, not just ten spoons, ten thousand mm. spoons, ten thousand spoons. And what you actually need isn't. It's not the spoons. Do you see what I mean? It's the yeah. knife. Ten thousand spoons. Is it, is it, you it need ironic? Knife. Yeah. A little too ironic. I I really do. Think. Yeah. 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 That one is definitely ironic. Something is. That's, <laughs> Something that's definitely ironic is that all of these examples are lyrics from the 1996 no way. Alanis Morissette top pop I- song, top. Ironic. Yeah. And, and I don't think any of them are good examples of ironic. No, and I think people have, people have said that ever since it came out, haven't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So uh, that's, that is ironic, though. 
what the fact the, that the she says they're ironic, ironic when they're not. Yeah. In a song called Ironic, there isn't a yeah. single example of proper situation irony. I've got an example uh, queued up though. Of actual, of actual, of what kind irony. of irony is it? Situation irony. Okay, that's one of the bestest. Let's have a listen. Woohoo! I'm a college man! I won't need my high school diploma anymore! I am too smart! I am too smart! I am too smart! I am too smart! S-M-R-T! I mean S-M-A-R-T! And just to be clear, the, the bit that doesn't come across so well there is that Homer's setting his high school diploma on fire and yeah. there's fire everywhere yeah. um, and everything's burning down. So, yeah. yeah, whilst he's singing about how smart he is, he has burnt down yeah. his house. So I think that is irony. Homer there demonstrating situation irony. There's also dramatic irony. So this is where the audience knows something that the character doesn't. Yeah, so like um, in a pantomime when, mm. when he is behind you. Yes. Yeah, or he's be behind the character. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because... Everyone, everyone knows and they shout that they know indeed yep. so that's a very uh, lowbrow example that is but yeah there is yep. dramatic irony in the fact that Baddy is behind the hero so yeah and you, and you know that you know something about the broader context that the character's behaviour mm. yeah, yeah. You, you can see what's going to yeah, happen yeah I mean yeah. usually it wouldn't just be that a villain is behind you yeah. but yeah um, uh, verbal irony. So the speaker means something when they say means something other than what they say. Yeah. Um. I've noticed the script uh, underneath each example <laughs> says J W gives example. So maybe um it's your turn. Well, this, this is A S gives example. Yeah, well, I've got a good example of this. Okay. Well, uh, you put that in. <laughs> well, I mean, verbal irony is sarcasm, really, isn't it? It's I like suppose so. Yeah. yeah. Um. But. Uh, yeah, a lot of 18th century satire mm. uses ironic compliments. So it says, I think it's really great that you think this, that, and the other, mm. when the actual subtext is, you must be an idiot if you think this, yeah. that, and the other. What's that? There's another Simpsons line about sarcasm, isn't there? Where he's like, In case you hadn't guessed, I mean sarcastic. <laughs> it's when he donates Bart's blood to uh, Montgomery Burns because he needs a transfusion. And he does it because he thinks that Burns will like give them something, a lavish gift or money. Mm. And he does so Homer writes him a letter and says dear Mr Burns I'm so glad you enjoyed my son's blood in case you hadn't guessed I'm being sarcastic <laughs> and then he reads it aloud in a really sarcastic voice and then yeah. so does Montgomery Burns yeah very yeah. good and um, finally structural irony so this can I is... just say that wasn't in the script it just was lucky that I remembered that yeah, yeah. I feel like I've seen you do it or like quote it. Guessed, yeah. <laughs> um, structural irony the whole work is built around the implication of an alternate or reversed meaning the example I've given is a world where poetry is a lucrative and meaningful profession. So we, mm. the viewer, would recognise that that is the opposite of our world. Mm. And then watching the implications of that would be ironic. Um, this also includes ironic persona. So characters who navigate a world that is like ours, but their perception is informed by an alternate or reversed meaning because they interpret the world differently. Yeah, so there's a kind of element of defamiliarisation about that, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Um, I was thinking Alan Partridge is an ironic persona. In mm. that, because uh, we've both been listening to the new series of the from podcast the House. from the Oast yeah. House, and I was listening to a bit this morning when he says uh, he wants to go back to the past, and mm. he's like, "People who vote Tory will appreciate the history of the past, and people who vote Labour probably, <laughs> probably could be persuaded to." <laughs> Have you like listened to the one where he goes swimming? Yes, I love that. It's got the best line in it. Goes, "Bye, don't worry too much about the wrongness." <laughs> yeah, that's very good. See you, Rob. A bit um, angry about being wrong. But we know that, yeah, anyway. that Steve Coogan's views are the exact opposite of Alan yeah. Partridge's in those moments. And yes. he's sort of and he's paraphrasing what a, what he thinks a telegraph reading Tory would say about a Guardian reading liberal. Yeah. Um so that's an ironic persona. So that so that's, that's right. 
So, though, so yeah, if you're a student and or just a, a person who's interested in these things, you know, I want to return to that primer of what irony was. So I imagine it might come in handy in all sorts of situations. Yeah, maybe we'll put it on TikTok. Yeah, let's put it on TikTok. So, yeah. right, yeah. I think we've covered everything. Yeah, we know about TikTok, we know about irony, we know who Lee Stein is. Mm-hmm. Let's play the interview. Let's do that. Hello, Lee. Hello, good to see you again. Welcome yeah, good to see you too. Mm. Sorry, Adam. Hey, well, I was just say, welcome back to the podcast. It wouldn't be September on Smith & Moore Talk About Satire if we weren't talking to Lee Stein. So, uh, yeah, welcome back. Um, so, I think, Joe, do you want to open things up? Because uh, you've been watching these investigations quite closely. Yeah, well, we both have, haven't we? And since we last talked to you, you've got well into the world of TikTok. And we were hoping to kind of talk about that and that you could tell us about what's been going on on TikTok and what you're, what you're doing on there. So I got on TikTok this year for two reasons. One is that the novel I'm currently writing takes place in a TikTok hype house, which is like one of these mansions in Los Angeles where they bring a lot of like hot young people to live together and create content all day long. So I really wanted to write this novel, um, but I was really struggling to get on TikTok. I didn't understand it. And I thought I was really frustrated with myself because I thought I'm the most online person I know. Why can't I get TikTok? And I ended up deciding to hire like a Gen Z assistant to hold my hand and introduce me to TikTok. And then the other thing that happened is that I read an, an essay in the Daily Mail about how the novel My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Otessa Moshfag was going viral on BookTok. And I thought, huh, that's really interesting because that's a novel that I use to sell my novel, Self Care, to a publisher. So we use My Year of Rest and Relaxation as a, what we call a comp title, a similar title, because it's a satire and because it's also about like a woman making herself sick in the name of health. The whole novel is about her trying to sedate herself into like unconsciousness for a year so she can quote unquote have a year of rest and relaxation. So the ironies in the title. So I thought, oh, I'll get on TikTok and I'll see if I can share my novel self-care with book talkers. Book talk is a corner of TikTok where people read books because I thought they would like the satire in it. Now, the results of this experiment <laughs> months later, um, I think my year of rest and relaxation during the pandemic became a literary realist novel because so many young women related to the character who wants to sleep for a year. So it's almost like it stopped being a joke. And that's something we can talk about. But like, I've never thought about this with any other book before. Like, can something stop being a satire because of the context of the like, apocalypse that we're all living through? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I suppose like we've all read things or reread them since COVID and thought like, oh, that lands differently now but I had and and satire in particular where things start to actually become quite real and alarming so and that book's massively popular on TikTok yeah it's massively popular on TikTok so at least in the United States I'm sure it's probably similar in the UK book talk the corner of TikTok devoted to books is selling millions and millions of copies of books so the top 90 authors on book talk sold 9 million copies in 2020 and 20 20 million copies in 2021 so millions of books are being sold because of this like enthusiastic fan community on TikTok, and a lot of the books are actually romance novels so colleen hoover emily henry these romance novels are really popular and they're popular among this gen z audience 
that is extremely depressed and anxious. So my pet theory is that all these young adults are on psychiatric medication and are kind of feeling numb. And so they want to read these books that give them these big feelings. And so I guess I was surprised to learn that they were reading this novel, My Year of Rest and Relaxation, as a kind of relatable text of what it feels like to have depression, which is so wild to me because there's no way this novel could exist if it wasn't a comedy. Like you wouldn't want to read a literary realist novel about depression because nothing would happen. But because the character, the main character has this audacious goal that she's going to visit this like horribly unethical psychiatrist and just get the heaviest medication she can by lying um, in order to knock herself unconscious. To me, that's just undeniably funny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, just the way you described the book, you said it's about this person who's making themselves sick in the name of health. And that's, that's, that is situational irony, isn't it? That's like um, that's like a fire station burning down or something like that. Like it's the opposite of what's supposed to happen. And having not read the book, it sounds like it's sort of, the character is also an ironic character. Like they're, they're, you're not supposed to, they're going about this the wrong way. And that's why it's funny. They're not like a, a role model. Right. And I even wonder if like the plot itself is ironic, if we if a plot could be ironic, because typically a plot in a novel is a character going after some kind of external goal, like she wants to get the guy or she wants a new job. And so it's almost ironic that her goal is to fall asleep. And so the humor is in all the obstacles that interrupt her goal mm. of falling asleep. Yeah. It's interesting. So one of your responses to one of these videos where you said, reading this book as, as realist fiction is like identifying with Patrick Bateman in American Psycho. <laughs> um, and I think that's exactly, that is exactly what it is, isn't it? Like if you read Patrick Bateman as a relatable narrative, that you lose all the satire, you lose the joke, yeah, and you're sort of, you're not well. <laughs> in a sort of yeah. way. But what's disturbing to me, there's like, people were commenting on my video, which I should talk about in more detail, but people are telling me that people are reading that people are reading American Psycho as like male agro inspiration, that there are people reading that book sincerely too. So like even that, which is like such an extreme example of satire, such an obvious example of satire, mm -hmm. even that book people are reading literally. So I made this video, I've been posting stuff on TikTok, but not very ambitiously. Like I feel like I'm just experimenting and learning as I go. Um, and none of my videos had really taken off. And then I did a video arguing that my year of rest and relaxation is a satire after I saw a young woman um, make a review of the book on TikTok, make a video review. And she said, it's all about privilege. So you and I, I think we've all talked about this before. It's like using this kind of social justice jargon is like the only way you can talk about anything. So she said, I think at its core, this is a book about privilege. It has a main character who's teeming with every kind of privilege, who's a piece of shit. That part I agree with. But I also think she's not that far from a common, straight, white, rich person from the early 2000s. Because of this character's privilege, she has a psych who trusts her enough not to question her intentions and give her a whole lot of drugs. So this video review of this novel is basically saying this main character has so much privilege that she can, has access to psychiatric care. It's just like such a 2022 take on a book mm. that so I just lost it. Was, <laughs> was this take saying, was it arguing 
that therefore it's a bad book and the author is also full of privilege and it's a bad move on the author's part to write a woman who's full of privilege or was the take that the author is critiquing that privilege because often they get conflated don't they that's a good question. I think in this case, the the reviewer was savvy enough to realize that there was a distance between the author and the main character that it was about that it was about someone with privilege, um, which is true. Like Otesh the Moshfeg is an Iranian American novelist. She's not a hot straight white woman, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Like the epitome of of privilege markers that we we all know. So she is deliberately writing a character who's different from her. But it seems like the audience, at least the audience on TikTok, has a hard time separating main characters that are written in the first person, especially, and the author. Anytime there's a first person point of view, it's very hard for them to untangle. So I made this video saying this book is a satire, just like American Psycho is a satire. You're not supposed to take it seriously. It's not mental health representation. And then my video went viral. At the same time, there had just been this big, big piece of literary criticism in New York Magazine by the critic Andrea Long Chu about Otessa Moshfeg's most recent novel, Lapvona, which I have not read, but it's set in like medieval times. It just sounds so depraved. I can't even bring myself to read it. But Andrea Long Chu wrote this very detailed um, piece about Otessa Moshfeg's like hatred of fat people and how that comes across in multiple novels. So I think one of the reasons that my video went viral is because it was interpreted as me standing up for their fave, like as if I was entering the culture war by defending Moshfeg against the attack by Andrea Longchu, when really I was just talking about a very particular book and what that book's trying to do. But because everything on the internet is now fandoms, it's like pick your team. You're either pro or anti. You're either fighting for this side or you're fighting for that side. And I think that's one of the reasons that it got so much attention because it was interpreted in that way. So what kind of attention did it get? <laughs> <laughs> the comments were just so fascinating. Um, for days, literally days and days and days, there was a thread going on from someone who said, um, hold on, let me find it. So the comment was, how would someone not on the internet just reading the book know it's not a memoir? Because your default expectation would always be that everything is a memoir. Obviously. If it says I, if it's first person, right? <laughs> it must be someone's true story. And so I did like a response video where I talked about like irony and book cover design. And this is where I think Gen Z does get irony. I think Gen Z is very visual and they can see irony. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that video did really well. But then on that, on that video, the same person was like, I still don't know how I would understand it's not a memoir. And then I had to make another video. I spent days of my life on this and I, I didn't want to make fun of the commenter. I still don't want to make fun of them. It's like, to me, going on TikTok is like meeting aliens from another planet. And they're like, well, can you just explain that to me again? And it's like, I have to rack my brain to, to, to make it even simpler. Mm. Can relate. <laughs> <laughs> but how do you see this in your classroom like you, we've talked about this on dm like seeing it in the classroom like conflating the author with the first person speaker of every text yeah and i think to an extent with some text that's always been the case and like like to use a really basic example um and not a particularly modern one like 
the conflation of Jane Eyre and Charlotte Bronte and to an extent like she kind of invites that because it's called Jane Eyre and autobiography but you're kind of meant to get that it isn't an autobiography but people people have always tried to detect the author in their works and read characters as being like expressions of different facets of them but I think you're right that that's stepped up a little bit and that we it seems to me that people look for author intentionality as if if they look hard enough they'll definitely find it and there's no way that it isn't there I mean so 20 30 years ago everything was all about the death of the author and that it wasn't it wasn't somebody just transcribing everything they thought and felt in a very conscious deliberate way but I feel like that has slipped away a little bit um what do you think Adam yeah I mean there's always there's always challenges but they and they change over time but we're in a moment now where I think it's not it's noticeable that as you said there is there's sort of so what we do in literature in the disciplinary literature is we're supposed to be and we're supposed to we're training students to be able to analyze and interrogate texts to deconstruct texts to understand how they're working so it's really it's quite a lot about crafting composition there's been a trend I think for a long time away from that and I think there's always been a pull to talk about plot or context or things that aren't like the mechanics of the text where that pull has gone in recent years is towards seeing everything through uh, in terms of power dynamics and I think it's yeah an identity so that's it and I think it's stepped up a lot in the last couple of years it's you know there's been situations that have been interesting to navigate where there'll be students who would say like I wasn't comfortable even reading this text because the person who wrote it doesn't have the relevant lived experience to be able to tell this story that's a new phenomena and every moment's a teaching moment so it's always what we try and do is bring it back to questions of composition but where I think it's harder and harder to get anyone to really look at what the text is saying to really just sort of like read and comprehend the text for what it actually is there's a huge and that, like I say it's always been the case that there's an impulse to impose all kinds of things on the text so 10 years ago it would have been like reading every text as evidence for whatever historical moment it was in rather than reading what's in the text every text written in the 1700s is about the civil war or, or whatever um, right, right. but now it's kind of um yeah, it's like this is a text about identity and all of those arguments take you away from analyzing the text. So I see, to simplify, I see like two different kinds of readers on TikTok. Mm. One is the Colleen Hoover fan. So Colleen Hoover writes these dark romance novels. They're written at a very easy reading level and they're very plot driven. So once you start, you can't stop reading them. Um, as of this year, this year, um, this author has now sold more copies of books than the Bible. So they're extremely popular. Um, I've read a couple to try to understand it. And I think the fans of these books are not readers. I think they probably hated English class and they don't want to put things together. They just want someone to tell them a story that they can get lost in. And the other thing about Colleen Hoover novels is she's not trying to be PC. It's not a politically correct novel. They're fantasies, but they're dark. Um, so these readers, they're like discovering books as adults for the first time. And so I'm kind of excited to see where this goes, because what if they read other books too? Like, what if this was the gateway drug to reading for them? Um, so they're reading at a very simple level and they're just learning that they're supposed to make meaning and put things together. Hmm. And I think there are smart college educated readers who enjoy the kind of close reading that we all enjoy. That's why we do what we do. And there were some smart comments on my TikTok video um, 
a couple of people pointed out that the objects of satire don't ever get that it's satire. And another person said, the more removed a reader is from the privilege the protagonist has, the more they can see the satire irony in it. So if the protagonist of my year of rest and relaxation is like this spoiled privileged woman that can afford to take a year off from her life, um, the people that can't do that are more likely to see the joke, which I would agree with. But I wonder what you guys think about, some people are commenting and saying like, even if it's satire, like I can still relate to it. This question of relatability. Um, can you relate? <laughs> can you relate to a character in a satire? Uh, yeah, that it feels like you probably shouldn't. Like that's not <laughs> that's not what it's that's not what it's for, is it? Are you not not supposed to, I assume, read this book and think oh, what a good idea. I would like to be unconscious for a year. That would be, that sounds like a really smart plan. But I suppose, I suppose you can quite, it, you, there's nothing to say you couldn't relate to the object of the satire or somebody in a satirical novel. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about self-care actually, and that one could read that and identify certainly with Marin. But, no, but that's not in an aspirational sense, is it, I suppose? I can see how, like, you know, one of the re one of the definitions of satire is that it's supposed to, like, hold up a mirror and make you change your ways. So if you're reading this text and you suddenly thought, oh, actually, I mean, I did this when I was reading self-care, but actually I do do that sometimes on social media mm. or something. And it's sort of like an entertaining, prickling moment of sort of maybe I should check myself. I think something's gone badly wrong if you read it and find it aspirational. Um <laughs> Because then, then yeah, because then you're not, it's not changing you. But I can see how it could happen. Um, I was also. I don't think they mean aspirational. I think they mean, I feel like this character feels. Like this character wants to sleep and check out of the world. That's how I feel too. So I suppose okay. in a sort of Swiftian satire, satirical framework, that person then should think about what they need to do to stop feeling like this character in a satire. But yeah. Like they do. It sounds like they're maybe sort of, this is giving them permission or something. Like. They feel, they feel validated by it. They feel validated by it. That's right. Was, and that's what's so interesting to me about what changed. Is, it came The book came out in 2018 or 2019. Yeah. And then it like got this second life during the pandemic when everyone was inside, just like the narrator. So it's just so interesting to me how what happened in, the, in, in history <laughs> um, changed this book's kind of place in the culture. Yeah. I mean, when I first... When TikTok was really taking off last year, I think I even shared it with you both. Like I was read this article, editorial essay that was about um, how TikTok was changing publishing and the big press is like Waterstones and Foils and stuff are sort of, they have entire sections now, which are what are the biggest books on TikTok. So the industry is being driven by what these late teenage, early 20 year old people, typically women are making TikTok videos about. And the thing I read sort of made the observation that a lot of the videos are about like their people, they'd be like, I looked at some examples, it'd be like someone sat on a bed and it'd be like me when I'm reading a, a horror novel. And it would be like the expressions of the person's face and it's set to music. Um, or like, there's a lot of book haul ones, isn't there? So like, these are all the books that I bought today and stuff like that. But none of the videos, the, the editorial essay, which was in the private eye, so it was of a satirical bent, but it was making the point that it didn't seem like there was much evidence that these people were actually reading the books. So it sort of becomes a commodity item. Like if everyone's reading this novel, we've all got to get it so we can make a TikTok about it and no one's actually reading the text. Speaking to you, it sounds like they are reading the text. I but, think they're reading them. Yeah, I think they're reading them, though. I think different readers are getting different layers from yeah. the reading experience. Like not everyone is reading very deeply. Some people are reading yeah. at a more surface level. 
and they're potentially reading it in a way to mobilize it for something they want to make their video about. So it's sort of like the text is, uh, yeah, there's sort of like a, a no, mercenary is kind of too cruel, but like you're reading the text with a sort of need for it to do something to to make your point that your base wants to hear about. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to like a character in self-care. It's like you're living your whole life with this little tickle in the back of your brain, like how am I going to make content about this? That you're yeah. constantly looking for content for to feed the feed the beast of social media. I think, yeah, I wonder, that's, that's quite nicely put because it's sort, sort of like the goal is to create the content about the book, not to engage with the, in inverted commas, content that's in the book. Right. So there's sort of like becomes a displacement like the, the the original authorial content is less important than the TikTok content. Yeah, I mean, there, there's got to be there's got to be something that it's doing, hasn't it? Because when I is is Verity by Colleen Hoover is that the one where she is the ghostwriter for the woman who's in a coma upstairs and she goes yeah. to live with them? All very normal. And when I, <laughs> when I read it, the thing it reminded me of most of all was um, Flowers in the Attic. And I remember like when we were all about. 12, 13, those books were like locally viral. And I think since adulthood, you realize like most 12, 13 year old girls go through that intense flowers in the attic phase and everyone's reading them and you you have to have read them to be able to have the conversation. So it's like that stuff has always happened. But then what is it that TikTok's brought to it that means that the equivalent of Virginia Andrews today is just doing so insanely well like it, it just seems to be like putting out more books every five minutes and they're it, like there's just whole sections of bookshops that are dedicated to them like how is how is that working is it is it just that it's literally that technology and social media mean that obviously this works differently and more effectively in 2022 than it did in the 90s or the early 21st century or are there like ingredients that we can point to that are like here's why crap is circulating in this particularly intense way right now i think flowers in the attic is like a perfect analogy i just read flowers in the attic for the first time this summer and i was just like wow shocked <laughs> even though i went i went in knowing what it was about you know i knew that it was about incest between a brother and sister but i was still like shocked as i was reading it um and I think this is what the TikTok audience is looking for. They they want to be shocked. That's why they like Otessa Moshveg. Um, they want to be moved. One of my favorite videos is like, there are many of these videos of, of young women recording themselves crying. So there's one girl crying as she finishes It Ends With Us, which is a Colleen Hoover novel, crying, crying, crying in hyperspeed. And then at the end, she asks her mom to hold her because she's crying so much and it's overlaid with this like robot voice it's like i was crying so hard i had to ask my mom to hold me lol and that's like i that's their sense of irony it's just so funny but it's like they're feeling big feelings so i don't think it's a coincidence that this app took off during the pandemic when everyone was at home these teenagers were not going to high school they were doing remote learning um they weren't seeing their friends they weren't dating um they weren't going to parties and drinking they were just like at home reading books and now this huge community has erupted and like colleen hoover is just churning out the books her her sequel to it ends with us comes out in october and it has more pre-orders than any book in simon and schuster history so there's something going on here 
Um, I do think it's just like technology is kind of amplifying this word of mouth engine that existed when you were a 12 year old girl and you were sharing the same paperback copy with all your girlfriends. TikTok is just like the the version of that, like on on steroids. I mean, thinking about it, even as I was saying it, I think that when we were all reading Flowers in the Attic, we did know it wasn't very good. But it seems like <laughs> these people are really invested. Like there's no we I I would like to think there was like an element of irony about it. I think we all knew it was like insane. And the, and the writing as well with all that like good golly lolly Catherine Dull and all that was was kind of rubbish. But there's so not- many exclamation marks on that book. <laughs> Yeah, and just a lot of like monologuing about how beautiful she is and stuff that was kind of ludicrous at the time. But is it ends with us is the one with the abusive husband where she owns the gothic florist. Yes. Yeah. Mad. But I think the thing we have to remember is like not everyone reads for the reasons that we read. Like a lot of people don't care if the book is good. Like they aren't they aren't reading for the literary quality. They're reading to escape their own lives. They just want something that will hold their attention and take them away. And the thing with a romance novel is that a romance novel always has to have a happy ending. So you know what you're getting when you buy one of these paperbacks. Um, Even It Ends With Us, which is about domestic violence, still has a happy ending. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I always think, uh, you know, wasn't it ever thus? Just with the way you described that, the person who was having the big feelings in the TikTok video. I mean, back in my period in the 18th century, like you've got the sentimental literature, a lot of literature of affect, and a lot of people like romances. Romanticism is all about trying to experience something after the fact, isn't it? But then you've got sentiment, long sentimental novels by Samuel Richardson, and by the end of the 18th century, the Gothic novel, which is primary. Like people at the time talk about buying them because they wanted to feel these feelings, and a lot of the criticism at the time was about the consequences of that. And I, I think Coleridge, I thought after chat this before the final idea, but I think Coleridge says something. He like refers, he describes chilling shockers as opium like they're like you've got a a population who are addicted to feeling big feelings from books and if they can't necessarily wait to get through a four volume and Radcliffe they can go and buy a sort of penny dreadful blue book chat book so um and then but then you've got all the anxiety about that same as around video games in the 90s and stuff but then you've also got people queuing up to satirize them um so who is going to be satirizing these tiktokers but like TikTok of the past, like I feel like they would be making these videos about Kathy and Heathcliff, you know, like that's where the, that, those are big feelings. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's different, though, isn't it? Because like when you were talking, Adam, I was thinking about um, Madame Bovary and mm. the very kind of serious, straight faced novel long critique of what a bad idea it is to live your life in books and to go after big feelings but to go after them in a kind of inauthentic way and that by the end of the novel it's like nothing this woman feels is real it's all performance it's all fake and and that feels like closer to what we're saying about maybe some of these responses but I don't think there's a general perception generally wouldn't the do you think the perception today would be like well it's all a bit adolescent but at least they're reading like nobody's really worried about the way that they're reading yeah i mean just what you say about madame bovary it reminded me of i'm i'm radcliffe and the mysteries of adolfo which is a text i teach 800 pages long i don't know if you've read it lee i have not it's about a a young girl called emily late teenage girl called emily who has too many feelings she's overly sentimental she has too many feelings she's our focalizer 
she ends up going on this massive adventure around Europe, getting kidnapped, there's castles, banditi, and by the end of it, learns to rein it in a bit. Like that's the that's the plot of the novel. And she once she does that, she can choose a husband and everything. Um, but so the critique of sentimentalism is inside the novel, but at the same time, the point of the novel is to make you feel all the things that Emily is feeling. So, so Radcliffe's having her cake and eating it. She's giving her teenage audience and her early young audience all of these big feelings and at the end being like, but the lesson is don't be like Emily, rein it in. Um, so as Joe says, there's a, there is the, 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 the books that so, well, those books aren't celebrating it, but then the shilling shockers and the, sort of like lower brow gothic are, are they don't have the critique in it they are 100% like buy this book and you'll feel terror oh you will feel what it's like to be a ghostwriter who's living in a mansion with a man with a woman in a coma upstairs or is she <laughs> yeah 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 relatable yeah. well that book i mean it has this talk about making content around books like verity there's a tw there's a twist and then there's another twist at the end and so there's all this arguing online about whether you believe whether your team manuscript or your team letter do you believe the twist or do you believe the twist of the twist um and people duke it out um but but hearing you talk about adam what was the name of the novel the 800 page novel and yeah, the mysteries of udolfo oh the mysteries of udolfo mm. so the end the end of I'm just going to give away the end of my year and rest and relaxation. You can cut this out later if you don't want to include it. But the year of rest and relaxation is the year leading up to September 2001, which is when 9-11 happens. And so the last page of the novel is 9-11 and the narrator finally wakes up, right, and realizes that her life has been meaningless and pointless. I, I, I didn't like it the first time I read it because it felt so tacked on, like you're going to end the book with 9-11. Um, but there is like that similar wake, awakening or waking up or realizing that you've been living a lie. Those gothic novels, that, that literature of affect I was just talking about, are like, they're, they're straight faced. I mean, this is like Austin does Northanger Abbey and satirizes them, but they're, they're very straight. They're not... Um, they don't realize how over the top they are or how absurd they are or i mean i've never actually actually i did have a copy of flowers in the attic because when i was a 16 year old someone in the restaurant i worked at lent me a copy but i didn't read very much of it um but i mean that's all very earnest isn't it as well yeah and verity is colleen hoover's like gothic suspense novel like she um it still is a romance but <clears throat> it's a woman in a house in a mystery going going crazy yeah whereas i imagine the sort of if there's any earnestness in my year of rest and relaxation it's that's part of the joke right it's not supposed to be earnest <laughs> um yeah so oh there's so much to there's so much to say about all of this and i'm trying to not get distracted by like just wanting to have a big chat about why verity is such a weird and strange and bad <laughs> book as it is like so you you said a few things about about TikTok, like it it coincides with the pandemic. It's connected to people kind of wanting to feel something and to perform that feeling. And there are two broad groups of TikTok of BookTok users. But is are there are there kind of other other tropes or tendencies that you think characterize particularly conversations on TikTok and BookTok in particular? Well, my obsession this week has been about literary criticism. So 
someone, this author named Ross Barkin, who I don't know, wrote something on Substack that's like, we need more book reviewers because book, like coverage for books has just shrunk in the media. The New York Times had the only books, dedicated book review section. The Washington Post just brought theirs back. So now we have two newspapers in America with dedicated book review sections. Um, and so this guy, Ross, was basically saying like, we need you write more book coverage because a lot of book coverage has just become um, – 10 novels to watch out for, 26 memoirs about dead moms, you know, that you want to read. And so a book talker who has almost 100,000 followers responded to this on Twitter and he was a little bit salty about it. And he said, I have almost 100,000 followers on TikTok. Why aren't these publications coming to me to write book criticism? And I was like, oh, my friend Rebecca was like, you have to make a video about this. I was like, oh God. <laughs> um, so I made a video and I tried to draw a distinction between like literary criticism, which might be published in the New Yorker, or, like the London Review of Books, and like the kind of book coverage that's on BookTok, which I see as more marketing because you're talking directly to readers. You're saying like, I liked this, I hated this, this was like this. Um, it's a really, it's a review, but it's by consumers, it's by readers, it's not by critics. And so I've been doing follow-up videos about this for days because people keep arguing with me and saying that quote unquote book criticism on TikTok is just as valid and just as valuable as anything you could read in a newspaper or magazine. And I keep finding myself having to like, like explain why it's different and what I mean when I say it's different in a way that they'll understand. And so it's, it, again, it's like, I feel like I'm talking to aliens from another planet and I'm trying to explain our culture to them. Oh, that feels so much of this moment in so many ways, because it's like on the surface, it's masquerading as like, well, this is anti-elitist, this is democratic. Anyone can have an opinion and my opinion is just as good as yours. And we have these conversations about like, why, you know, is it, is it elitist to say that students should really read like peer reviewed journal articles rather than just blog posts? And like, why are we saying that? And what are we privileging, et cetera, when we do? And so it's like on the surface, it's like, it's that conversation, but it's actually, it's it's about capitalism and marketing and material objects and buying books and flogging more books and not really at all about the beautiful validity of everyone's opinion but the beautiful potential of them to buy more books yeah i mean i understand why the the tiktoker with all the followers was salty because he has all these publishers coming to him and saying can you post about this for free can you post and so he feels used which I understand, but like I kept trying to explain why there's a difference between like a 1200 word piece of writing because some of the people who follow me who are my fans on TikTok, they're like, but I like your videos. Like what's the difference between like one of your videos and a piece of criticism? And I was like, well, I'm just talking off the top of my head on TikTok. You know, I'm not writing a deeply considered argument driven piece where I'm like citing textual evidence. Like that would take me weeks. And instead I'm spending 45 minutes making a three minute TikTok video, but there is a genre on TikTok of like the kind of video essay that I guess I'm now, this is the kind of TikTok that I'm most comfortable making. I don't make like funny, I don't do like funny crying videos to viral sounds. I, I do like these little video essays, but I still, I don't write them out. I just think about it and then I talk like I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah. Something, oh, go Jay. No, no, go ahead. I'm, I'm digesting. There's something about institutions isn't there so joe mentioned sort of gatekeeping and privileging of certain views so, so the new yorker is an institution which in theory has certain sets of checks and measures to make sure that what's published has been through 
quite a lot of rigor or the person who's doing it has expertise in what they're talking about. And it's the same with the peer review sources at university that Joe was talking about. And then you've got the, the this other realm, which as Joe said there, like it's driven by this kind of like, we're not gatekeeping, it's more democratic. But actually that other realm seems to be like, it's, it's most, it's like it's driven by capital, isn't it? And that's not to say that institutions aren't, but in a different way. So that guy wants to pose criticism because you know, he wants to promote certain things or he's getting sponsored to say certain things. So I mean, I know that both of them are increasingly neoliberal and existing capitalist spaces, but the motive, you would expect a different set of motivations from a New Yorker article than you would a TikTok video. I would, yeah. but I guess the people on TikTok do not see the difference. That's, that's what I was gonna say. They don't necessarily realize that they're in that system. It reminds me of, um, <laughs> this is, sounds pretty random, but like Zizek, when, he when he's describing cinema, and he says anything that you see inside film is pure ideology because everything is created. You're watching an entirely manufactured scenario. Even anything you see on the screen is, is pure ideology because it's a created world. And it's the same in like TikTok, social, all social media, it's completely, it's not real. It's sort of constructs and representations and stuff. And it's completely about clicks and money and profit and engagement, isn't it? So that perhaps is not necessarily the same as what's happening in a in one of these other institutions. When I was um, hiring a part-time assistant to help me with TikTok, I posted a little job application. It got shared on Instagram. I got a bunch of applications. And the thing that came up again and again in these applications where I said, who do you follow on TikTok? You know, I had to make sure they were familiar with TikTok. The thing that came up and again and again is this idea of authenticity. Yeah. That TikTok is where the authenticity is. It's not on Instagram. Instagram is the domain of the millennials that are trying to pose and stage and perform. But TikTok is authentic. And it is just as performative, but it's a performed authenticity. Yeah. Is it? The other thing that I was thinking about was that the other kind of measure that any lengthy book review in the publications that you're talking about the other important check that they would be doing would be to make sure it was original work and that it's not plagiarized from somewhere else. And same goes with like peer reviewed articles. And then I was thinking like on Instagram, you know, if you kind of get fed content from any particular subcategory of Instagram, like house renovations, Instagram or um, fashion, Instagram or cute toddlers, Instagram, you see that all the big players in that, world they they all do like versions of the same post so it'd be like 10 things I learned about or um 2020 versus 2022 learning to love my whatever and so the same kind of formats circulate sometimes I think in ways that annoy the um the content providers and sometimes they'll do it very consciously they'll be like oh I'm taking inspiration here from the queen of house renovations and doing my 10 things I learned so all of which is a very long-winded way to ask, like, does that also happen on TikTok, that people are doing the exact same things from different accounts? No, TikTok rewards and prizes originality and difference. Okay. And so the creators that stand out on TikTok are the ones that are doing something different from everybody else. Whereas on Instagram, there is exactly what you mentioned, which is a lot of copying what's work, copying yeah. what works. And it's why like there were like glamorous influencers posing their vacation photos. And now suddenly we all pose our post our vacation photos in the same way. It's like we're there's a kind of conformity on Instagram and I see TikTok as different. 
Um, and I think the reason it just took me a while to get into TikTok because I wasn't sure what to search for, or what to look at. And then once I had like a young person sending me videos that trained the algorithm to what I wanted to see because TikTok is not social media, it's recommendation media. So it's recommending things to you based on what it learns about you and your preferences. Right. So I see a lot of video essays now. It I see a lot of people talking about culture and talking about, yeah, internet culture and popular culture, because that's what I like watching. So that's what it sends me a lot of. And it, it sounds like authenticity is indexed to creativity, as in you've done something original. Yeah. It's, yeah. Which is why I'm just fascinated that anyone would think that TikTok was an authentic representation. I'm fascinated when anyone thinks anything is an authentic representation or, or like indicative of authenticity. But what is it? Is it that creativity that makes TikTok the most authentic social? Platform? Well, there's also a big like it's so it's so interesting because I've tried to, you know, make my own book self-care go viral on TikTok and Again, there was like a miscalculation where I assumed people knew that my year of rest relaxation was a satire. I guess they didn't. Um, I don't know if they get the jokes and the world I'm writing about in self-care is the world of Instagram and it's so perfect looking and it's all the millennials wearing the contouring makeup. This is from another time. On TikTok, it's all these Gen Z girls in sweatpants, no makeup. Like that's a form of the authenticity is that they don't, they aren't trying to look beautiful and skinny the way millennials are on Instagram. It really is two different internet cultures. Yeah, that's from the TikToks that I've seen and I've not like properly got into the site. That's, that's really true, isn't it? It's like it will generally be in your own unfiltered house or when people, the ones I see a lot of are like, teachers on the first day of term are like this or like um the, here's here's a thing that people do or whatever but people don't usually like dress up for that it's just right. them or if they're trying to if they're trying to give the impression that they're like a woman with shoulder length blonde hair they'll just put a yellow towel on their head like there's no kind of artifice about it although that in itself could be an artifice but it's it, it seems like that is that is how you're supposed to do it on TikTok. Yeah, it's the idea that you're seeing someone's quote unquote real life. Yeah. So when you're when you're on TikTok and when and posting videos and and getting these responses and getting into these kind of discussions, like how does it take you? Does it infuriate you or amuse you or like worry you the way that people talk about books or the way they respond to the idea of any potential irony? versus authenticity like how does it land with you i love it because i'm so curious to understand this world like i feel like an amateur anthropologist like i'm just meeting these strangers and i'm like tell me more about how you think i'm so curious it's so different than like you know before this i was addicted to twitter and twitter is just like angry bitter writers like kvetching about their editors um and virtue signaling to each other about how they're the best members of the literary community and it's so insider and it's so like lofty and you know your prestige is in like what little literary magazine you had a short story in um that i'm getting to meet like a whole different group of people on TikTok, and so i'm just curious and having a good time though like the experience of going viral was so nuts like I was checking the platform so much because every time I would open it, I would get so many notifications. I've started like dreaming in like TikTok, like the, the screen view of TikTok. I've started dreaming in TikTok. 
Um, I'm definitely now I'm addicted. I'm addicted to TikTok. It worked on me. I wasn't addicted for a long time until I went viral and now I'm addicted. Do you think what we'll see is like TikTok? It, because there has always been a thing where different platforms are used predominantly by different demographic groups, haven't they? Like people my age wouldn't have been on Tumblr in 2009. People who are my age now, people my age then would have been. So like it's sort of later teenagers, isn't it? Or who do that? And then it, do you think people who are on TikTok now will grow out of it and then go on, they'll learn what irony is afterwards? And then obviously more <laughs> people go through or like, or are they is this just where society's going and they're going to be stuck not realizing the, the irony thing i'm still trying to puzzle it out because i do see examples of them understanding what irony is when it's visual mm. but i just don't know that they understand it in a text that they read texts so earnestly and so sincerely I mean, I was thinking, getting ready for this, I was thinking about when I make jokes, when I'm being ironic, the main, I think one of the main types of irony I use is, is verbal irony where I say, I say something that's obviously the opposite of what I mean, or someone like will be given something to do or told something to do by the government or whoever. And then I'll, I will say it in the most credulous way possible. The joke being, I think this is stupid, but I'm pretending it's not. So the whole thing is, um, is saying something when you mean the other. I was going to say, like, there's a drift. It's often commented on, isn't it, that we're moving towards a sort of, like, really literal way of reading everything. And one of the problems with Twitter is that people don't apply context and you can't tell when someone is being sincere and there's the sort of, like, bad faith readings. Although it sounds like TikTok's generally a different vibe, but a similar thing is happening. Like, do you think verbal irony is going to die because of the internet or is there <laughs> or not? R.I.P. Verbal Irony. <laughs> That's the name of the episode. I mean, I wonder if Gen Z, they're just like, they're so sensitive and earnest. I wonder if they just don't feel like if they only feel comfortable joking in a certain way, if they aren't yet, if they haven't yet been burned to become cynics like us. I don't know. Um, they, they have to grow up. They're just so young still. Do you know about the, have we talked about like the birds aren't real campaign? We did an we episode talked about, about it. it. Okay. Yes few episodes ago didn't we we did because that's like a gen z parody yeah yeah but it's well i mean we did we talked about it. we did a feature on it but i mean it's it's hard to describe isn't it because it's sort of like an aesthetic like this is yeah. what you would look like if you thought that if you thought there's a conspiracy where the birds were robots watching us like this is what you would say if you thought that so there's quite like cosplaying a, a an ironic persona aren't they yeah but it's also signaling that you know isn't it? If yeah. you have a birds aren't real t-shirt, you're signaling that you know about that little, that whole narrative and you know what's what and you know that birds are real and people who don't are, are wrong. Like, yeah, explaining that one to aliens would be tricky, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. And that, that was like a whole... It didn't, I don't think you just thought he like, I've read an interview with the guy and he was like, I just went to this protest and I thought it'd be funny if I had a sign that said birds aren't real. And I went and stood there loads of like Trump supporting dudes and put the sign up. And then someone asked me earnestly why I was there. And that's how it started. But then it sort of evolved into a parody of QAnon and stuff, didn't it? Right, 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 right. And the conspiracy theory believers that are the boomers. Yeah. 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 Like, can the boomers even read irony? I mean, it's just like, is the internet, is the inner, this is the question, is it generational or is the internet like doing this to all of us? Like, is it harder and harder to tell sincerity yeah. from irony? 
Yeah. It's everyone in the world apart from the three of us on this Zoom call. <laughs> Hopeless. Yeah. Well, something that I do take some reassurance, I think about this a lot, um, that I find slightly reassuring is in Virginia Woolf's Common Reader from the early 20th century, so the chapter on Joseph Addison, who's someone I work on a lot, she likes Joseph Addison, but Joseph Addison isn't very popular at the time. So she writes her whole essay on him is sort of like, this is why people don't like Joseph Addison. It's because they think he was too po-faced. They thought he was the first Victorian. They thought this, that, and the other. And then through then in the essay, she traces all of the things that people think about Addison's work back to different biographical essays that have been written about him. And then she says, his works aren't like this. The reason people don't like, don't like Addison is because nobody's actually read his stuff. Um, and then, then she sort of quotes some of his stuff, which massively debunks everything everyone says. So she's like, in conclusion, before you decide what something's like, you should read it. And she was doing that in like 1920. So um, it's... Uh, no one would do that on TikTok. It would be way too time consuming. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> what would that TikTok video be like? Like, here's me impersonating three people who are wrong about Josie Fendry's. <laughs> With a yellow towel on my head. <laughs> and, then, and then here's me laughing at how good it is. And then it wouldn't actually quote Joseph Addison at all. Yeah. <laughs> my mom did not like my satire of Joseph Addison, lol, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. thing is, eventually it's going to happen, isn't it? Like all the, all the mums will join TikTok and then it won't be cool anymore. And then there'll have to be something else like like with Facebook and then Instagram and Twitter. You know, even I, after this chat, I'm thinking maybe I will go join TikTok. If the minute I go on it, like 10 cool young people have less of a stake in the place because, you know, it's it's not for me. But what I'm just trying to imagine what the next thing would have to be like to to fulfill whatever it is they want next. Like, well, it's be real is the next thing. Oh, of course. Heard? Yeah. We're authentic. Yeah. Authentic. Yeah. I'm not getting on Be Real. Like, it's like, I don't, I don't want an app telling me what to do. It's horrible, isn't it? It's bad enough to, yeah, it's bad enough to be addicted. Yeah. You must immediately right now take a very authentic and natural picture of yourself doing what you're doing. Yeah. But first it was exciting because it was like, oh, Be Real, like it's a place without advertising and sponsored content because how could the brands get on Be Real? But then of course the brands figured out how to get on Be Real so that when you are asked to take a picture, Chipotle gives you a coupon code to get your burrito <clears throat> at that moment. Wow. Everything's commercialized. The reason I've been reticent about joining TikTok is because isn't it the case that like every single second of content is analyzed by the Chinese government or something? And, which is which <laughs> this is, is what I've heard is that the Chinese government is tracking my every keystroke. That's right. Yeah, that's what I heard. Yeah, but I mean, it's them or Amazon, isn't it? Like, or Mark Zuckerberg, whoever. It's just who who would you rather have your data? I suppose. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was in a so I'm I'm in a WhatsApp group with three of my friends from university, two of whom have gone into publishing. One of them is with a big university press. One of them has gone to a press and they basically produce like books for kids that are younger than 10. Mm -hmm. And she's like, a, she's one of the big wigs there. And she just sent a message that they were she's like, uh, can anyone explain what the fuck TikTok is to me? Because uh, apparently I have to get us on there and I, I just don't understand what I'm looking at. And then my friend from the university press who is, who basically curates TikTok for me, uh, actually you do as well, Lee. <laughs> I, I've never been on TikTok, but I see quite a lot because you are my friend from this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a long chat where she's trying to explain what TikTok was and how it works. And even I, who I think has some sense of it, found this conversation baffling. It's the, it seems like, I don't know, 
if you at this point if you don't get it you're not going to get it unless you can hire unless you <laughs> no you do need a stuff. guide you do need a young guide to kind of show you stuff because once you're you can find the stuff you like then the algorithm will take over and show you the rest yeah but like to your publishing friend like i'm I just feel like how can writers and people in publishing like ignore this? Like as a writer, I want to be read. Mm -hmm. And so if there's a place on the internet where people are like devouring books, I'm curious what that looks like. And I'm curious who those readers are and what they like. Like, that's just, I think I'm like the only writer that likes book marketing, but um, to me, it's like a fun adventure. And I'm, I'm curious to learn about this, this other world. And then I was thinking the other day, the, the reason I'm really so interested in Gen Z is that, I was really online at a young age and I'm an older millennial. I was a weirdo. So my peers were not online like I was online. I was making friends at a time online when that was very weird. And so the fact that there's this whole generation that's extremely online as young people, I, I guess I feel like the younger me connects to to them. So I feel like on a way I really understand them. I really understand what it's like to be on so online and have so much of your life mediated through screens. And so that's one of the reasons I feel connected to that younger generation, even as I'm like also trying to understand them because they're so foreign to me. It does, it does seem like it, it. I could imagine that the experience of being on TikTok and having those conversations could be quite frustrating or irritating, but it does seem like it genuinely energizes you. Yeah, I really like it. When I get the weird comments, I'm just, I'm just fascinated. I'm just fascinated <laughs> by them. It's, it's, yeah. What, uh, so I know you went on there with the intention of trying to make self-care go viral on TikTok. Like, have, what kind of, how have people on TikTok engaged with the novel? Has anyone found, interacted with your own irony and satire in an intro, in a sort of <laughs> way? It's actually gone pretty well. So our goal was to contact 100 TikTokers by the end of the summer, and we did that. And there have been about 50 videos either about self-care or like the kind of haul that Adam that you're describing. So like self-care is in the background or self-care is in a stack or there's like, here are all my pink books that I own and there's self-care. And so I feel like it's, you know, I'm getting it out there visually because the thing about Gen Z is they're not using Google. Mm -hmm. They use TikTok as their search engine. So it's like I've introduced my novel into the Gen Z search engine. So now if anyone types self-care, now they can come up with things. Um, so I've appreciated the videos of people saying they laughed at the book. <laughs> I guess that's my my number one goal. There was one video I think I sent you that called it a light satire. Oh, yeah. That, that I thought was very curious because I think my book is pretty dark. So if it's a light satire, I think we've talked about this in previous episodes, the layers of satire and self-care that there's like the top layer satirizing the wellness industry, the second layer satirizing the hypocrisies of girl boss feminism. And then the third layer is like satirizing internet social justice warriors. But most people get number one, some people get number two, and then like only people on Twitter get number three. <laughs> My suspicion so, as a marker would be what's happened there is that they've read the first chapter. <laughs> I think they're reading it. I think they're reading it, but um, I don't. I don't think that most readers get what I'm saying about victimhood culture. That like we've made it now so that um, your trauma becomes part of your brand and part of the content you post on the internet. And like the irony of the believe victims beach towel and self-care the the merchandising of trauma and victimhood um i don't know that people are ready or willing to see this like my book is like a post me too novel but it's you know you got did you guys read vladimir 
Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's going to be in this episode as well, isn't it? I love Vladimir so much, but that's another one that I feel like is a post Me Too novel. That's, you know, we're getting beyond yeah. the books that are just about like bad men doing things to women, which I'm so bored of. I want to see women doing bad things. <laughs> and the narrator of Vladimir, like how far is she going to go? It's just very fun to read. She yeah. does do some bad things. Just that line where she's like, was it something like, then I got the cable ties out of my pocket. And you're like, what? <laughs> I didn't know you brought cable ties. <laughs> so, yeah, so they can, so they found self-care for you. That's reassuring. And they see, they do do irony, but it tends to be more visual. Is a positive thing I've got from this conversation. Yeah. <laughs> That's good then. <laughs> Yeah, I yeah, think I just... talked about I think I talked about the Vladimir cover in my irony and book cover video because I talked about it like in comparison to the cover of Lolita, which are those the little girl's ankles with the bobby socks and the little saddle right. shoes. Yeah. And then Vladimir is like this hairy man's chest but no head. It's like this man objectified. And people were like, wow. Like when I post these videos, I always like, wow, I never thought about before that before. Or like, I've never heard of literary fiction. I've never heard of that genre. You know, so it's like mind blowing. <laughs> that must be really like exciting to to bring that to them. Yeah. At the risk of sounding really basic, my copy of Vladimir has got a woman with dark hair and a red jumper facing a wall. So she's yeah. So it's a red wall. She's in a red coat and she's just got her head against the wall. And I've read the book twice now, and I still don't understand what that is a picture. What the cover means. Wait, do you have your cover? You can hold up. Do you I have it there? I lent it to Joan. Have I'll you seen the one I'm referring to? Let me yeah, hold yeah, it up. That's the one on Amazon where it's like a... Oh, you've seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's a like a hairy head. chest. Yeah. So that makes sense because you're sort of like, I suppose it would be in that instance, the female gaze is objectifying him and like reducing him down to a set of objects. But I don't know what the cover, other than like, because I, yeah, there it is. I don't know what that is. Well, I mean, I'm assuming it's the, the narrator. But Beating her head against a wall, literally. Yeah. Yeah, it could be that. Could be that. She's really sad. We'll have to speak to the author and uh, ask her why. That's she... so interesting because that that British cover reminds me of like, I feel like a lot of the like deranged women books that are popular on TikTok have similar British covers. That's what someone was telling me that that's a whole subgenre on Twitter, sort of like bad middle-aged women. Deranged women of all ages. Yeah. Excellent. Cool. Your like... new novel, the, so it's a sort of gothic novel set in a, what did you say? It was a hype room, a TikTok hype room. Yeah, so it's a gothic novel set in a TikTok hype house, and it's told from the point of view of two different women um, figuring out what happened to a tarot TikTok influencer that has gone missing from the house. And is it so right now it's more hype house than gothic. I think I have to go back in and make it even more gothic later. Just put a wife in a coma upstairs or something. <laughs> So, so, so the new novel is going to yeah. be satirical. Is it what? Satirical. It's not going to be satirical. So oh. I'm not I'm not making fun of TikTok in the way that I'm making fun of social media and self-care. It will be funny, but it's not a satire. And I, I realized that but by, you know, sharing it with my writing group and them saying, like, is this a satire? And then I was like, no, it's not. So it's not a satire, but it will be funny. Um, but I, I want to give my readers some big feelings in this one. Cool. Could you could you put a little bit of satire in so that you can come back on the podcast and talk about it? <laughs> of course. You have an of course. Why, why Lee Stein's new novel isn't satire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. But it's funny because I think we talked about this before that like some people have read self-care and they're like, I think this is just realism. 
you know, like people who've like people who've worked in the wellness industry, people who worked in startup culture have read self self care and been like, no, this is what it's actually like to work in this industry. Like it's not a joke. But that's exactly why the satire works, isn't it? Because it, you can recognize some of those things and, right. and see how they how they are real. Like you have to have some element of the real in there, don't you? Yeah. Well, thanks very much, Lee. Oh, always a pleasure. It was great to see you guys. I hope yeah. that wasn't too rambling and all over the place. Well, I really enjoyed talking to Lee Stein, did you? I really did. Uh, it's always a pleasure and it wouldn't feel like September if we didn't have a conversation with Lee, Lee Stein. Indeed, yes. Yeah. And... Um, one of the things that we mentioned there was the book Vladimir. We did. Um, so shall we talk about Vladimir a little bit more now and talk about the other books too? Yeah, so it's finally time to debrief the Smith & War satirical summer challenge. Yeah. Uh, in which we challenge people to read th one, two or three satirical novels. We've already introduced them. And uh, the first one we're going to talk about is Vladimir by Julia May Jonas. What did you think of the book? Um, I enjoyed the book. Yeah, I thought it was, I thought it was good. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was... <laughs> Very uh, clever and funny and um, had a surprising twist with the cable ties, as yeah. mentioned before. Mm. Um, some really sharp observations about campuses and the kinds of people who you find there. Mm. Um, didn't think it was like a satire all the way through. No. Although it, but it depends, doesn't it? it? It's a bit like Lee says about self-care and about the layers because... On the surface, you can see where she's mocking or, or parodying or satirising campuses, students mm. um, and campus culture. And then there's a kind of underneath that, there's a commentary on like the where we're at now with the Me Too movement mm. and how that's playing out um, yeah. even still. Yeah, yeah. So it's qualifications for being on our list is the uh, Cal Reverie. And the Telegraph described it as... A university sex scandal, uh, so she says the novel treats a university sex scandal as fuel for sharp, sly satire and Vladimir and Sarah McCrow for the magazine book page said Part dark comedy and part satire with a dash of the gothic and plenty of literary illusions, Vladimir is a little hard to pin down, but then she suggests it's kind of a, the best way to think of it is a mashup of the Netflix comedy The Chair and Tom Stoppard's 1962 play, yeah. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. Yeah. yeah, and I think when I was first reading it, I was re there's two, like you say, there's two things going on. There's the campus, mm. dark campus comedy, and then there's the Me Too commentary. Mm. In terms of the campus comedy, uh, well, there's, it's a it's situational irony, isn't it? In mm. that the students are very unreasonable, yeah. I think, in there, and as are some of her colleagues in trying to placate the unreasonable students. So should we should we just like say what it's about? Yeah, before yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. So um, the main character we never find it out name. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, her husband has been embroiled in a Me Too style scandal, mm. and she's still working at the university that he's been suspended mm. from and is coming under pressure from her students and her colleagues to divorce him mm -hmm. and ultimately is told that she's going to have to sort of take a leave of absence because by her continuing to be there every day, it looks as though she, and by extension the university, condone what he is accused of having done. Yeah. Um, which she takes... Um, which, which she's unhappy with. Yes, um, yeah. yeah. So she finds herself often in situations where students will be making comments about what she should do in her marriage or yes they go and see her don't they yeah. and say uh you're you're a hot lecturer and we really think that you need to to leave him mm. um yeah and it's interesting because she, she never says that she supports him or doesn't so basically none of her issues with her husband are about what he's having been accused yeah. of having done 
she's just not really into it anymore yeah and her visceral gut reaction to these moments is to say like what the hell is it to do with you it's my private life my private life has got nothing to do with my job and nothing to do with the way that i teach you but then the way that she deals with it is to write these messages to students or say things to them like i really appreciate your concern i know that it comes from a place of sensitivity i respect that you've aligned it to this ideology and i i would really appreciate it if you could give me this space to learn and develop and all this so she's having so there's a verbal irony thing here if she's having to well, she's she's presenting it in this way, so that she can persevere. And I think that is that is there's some satire in that, isn't there, on the kind of yeah, on the on the culture, but also on what's happening in universities where the the the, the academic is or the the people the university is on the back foot, isn't it? Yeah, because they're, because they're dealing with a consumer rather than a learner. Yes, yeah, mm. and they initially they sort of try flattery with her, say. Like, you're this hot, brilliant lady. We think you're really hot. I could tell they prized their own opinion of my hotness, their ability to appreciate hotness in an older woman. And, like, it is totally unfair what he's done to us. You, I asked. Us women, she said. Ah, I said, not you personally. And I think that that's, um, Mm. you know, it's a brief moment, but I I think that is a question about, like, to what extent is it... um, fortuitous or cynical of individuals to to well as the very name suggests um the me too movement mm-hmm. that like well is it is it them to these students mm-hmm. who um who've come to sort of tell her what she should should and shouldn't do um and then yes as you say she explains to them very carefully about institutions and um challenges and says that said, and I say this again, with such deep gratitude for the care you've extended toward me that my husband and I have had a life together long, longer than any of you have been alive. And I beg for your understanding and the respect of my privacy as I decide for myself, as a hot, brilliant lady, how I will handle my marriage of 30 years. Mm. Extending me that courtesy is an act of feminism in and of itself. And it's really interesting that the only way she can get them to go away and stop telling her to get a divorce is mm. by the sort of flattery identity politics and um inviting them above all to see what they're doing as an act of feminism yeah yeah and then uh, as the faculty turn on her, it the ones leading the leading the campaign are the academics who do the least teaching least yeah. work are like least interested in actually doing the job and most interested in performing a certain kind of activism i suppose you might say yeah yeah and so there's the campus level to it mm. but there's also the character of Vladimir and yeah. what happens to him. Do you want to share some thoughts yeah, about that? Yeah, well, the novel sort of... It's like two novels, isn't it? And you've got Vladimir mm. introduced. So Vladimir is a younger member of the faculty. He's, he's about 40, isn't he? She's in, yeah. her, she's in her mid-50s. Um, he He's charismatic, but he's also a bit boring, but he's a hugely successful... <laughs> charismatic, but boring. Well, he's That's... charismatic in the classroom, but she, mm. yeah, she's, and she's drawn to him, but then when they spend time together, she does find him a bit underwhelming. Yeah. Um, but he is having difficulties in his marriage he appreciates the time that she takes in giving him feedback there was one line in this that i thought was great which is when she said i've not got much to offer but something i can always offer is feedback yeah and uh, she's like i always read give generous feedback on student work i give friends who are writing things feedback and that is that turns out to be exactly what he needs and wants Mm. when they go for dinner but yeah but then it takes things take a turn for the bizarre Mm. as uh, she ultimately ends up taking him to a cabin in the woods and things get yes. weird yeah and then there's a big fire and there's a big fire and some some level of redemption and resolve mm. by the end yeah and as Lee is alluding to uh 
in the interview, the cover, the original cover of the book is Vladimir's body, and so he's been objectified and subjected to gaze, and it's kind of like she becomes unwittingly gets carried away and becomes a. Well, I can, can you unwittingly tie someone to a chair with cable ties? That's true. No, no, she just. I mean, I think, but there, there is. A, I feel like there was a sense as things had escalated where she's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe I did that." Yes, um, yeah, she's kind of detached <laughs> from herself in yeah. a lot of that, isn't she? That's fair. Yeah. So. Um, so yeah, so that so there's that element to it as well. Mm. Um, that I felt like that was less that was more commentary, less satire. But I suppose it is that it's satire in the sense that it's exaggerating a dynamic. Is let's take mm. it's dynamic, let's take it to frightening extremes. Yeah, yeah. I think there's there's a sort of surreal plot. The 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 plot about Vladimir himself is kind of surreal and extreme, and is a kind of darkly oblique commentary on gender politics in contemporary america mm-hmm. and then that's coupled with the campus part of the novel which feels more um specifically and deliberately satirical mm-hmm. and that you know she's also quite enjoying satirizing mm. campuses students and academics yeah i mean just there's some moment there's one moment where that where she has not prepared for her class and she's forgotten prep hasn't she and, I um, do you believe I've you've got, got that it here. <laughs> yeah and um, she but she has a technique a strategy for when she doesn't when there's nothing to say about the text I read all morning until I had to hurry to my 11.30 class. I had thought I would get a cup of coffee midway though, through, but I didn't. And I was so absorbed that I had arrived to the classroom slightly late, disoriented, and had to spend some time asking the students about how they were faring before I could organise my thoughts enough to remember what we were covering that day. Luckily, all my students loved nothing more than to speak about their psychological wellness, so my buying of time was met with some eager stories about medication, campus counselling, time management and ADHD, told with wry self-awareness while I settled myself. Yeah. So yeah, she's, she's quite cynically covering the fact that she hasn't prepped by yeah. just letting them talk about themselves for yeah. a, a while. Yeah. Which I, I know some people would say, well, that's, you know, that's a very good thing to do, that is how mm. you should start a seminar, but... Um, That's not her motive, is it? Um, no, she's no, time. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so in conclusion, Vladimir, quite satirical, quite good, quite good. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting in that it tips over from satire to horror, really, doesn't it? In a way. Yeah, boathouse. And all mm, that. Which is, they are close bedfellows, I think, because they're both they both take something real and and ex- and hype it up, don't they? Like bit, exaggerate it to to an extreme. Anyway. Yeah. Quite satirical. Book. I liked it. I liked it. Yeah, let's yeah. move on to the next one, Echo Chamber by Echo John Echo Chamber, what did you think to this? I really enjoyed this one as well. Um, I, it's by John Boyne. It's by John Boyne, yeah. Controversial. John Controversial Boyne. He didn't used to be him. controversial, did he? But he is now. And, uh, yeah, on um, a number of fronts. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is on our list because it describes itself as a satirical helter-skelter. Mm-hmm. Um, interestingly, Vladimir, on the cover of Vladimir, or on the in the, when you try and buy it on Amazon, it says Vladimir semicolon a novel. Mm. Which is perhaps just clarifying to everyone that it isn't a memoir because yeah. it's written in the first person. Yeah, well, you, God yeah. knows you have to tell people if yeah. it's a memoir or not, don't you? Whereas John Boyne has clarified the Echo Chamber is a, hel- a satiric helter skelter, yeah. and uh, the Independent, the review in the Independent described it as a relentlessly funny satire, as well. Um, and I thought it was interesting that in the Guardian it was described as. Uh, exhibiting Hogarthian remorselessness. Mm. So a line in it with a really savage tradition of juvenilian satire, and I can sort of see why that why they say that. Um, but yeah, I enjoyed it. I actually listened to it as an audio book, and it was Richard E. Grant doing the performance. Right, I imagine that would work quite well. It was fantastic. His performance was amazing because when so, yeah. Do you want to say what the story is? Um, so it centres around the Cleverly family. George Cleverly is a TV personality. His wife Beverly 
is um, by this point kind of a hack, isn't she? She's written some successful novels, but now she just gets them all ghost written. Mm. Um, and uh, three children: uh, Nelson, the oldest, who has uh, he he sort of can't function or be comfortable unless he's wearing a uniform, and he pretends to be a policeman with hilarious slash disastrous results. Mm-hmm. Um, Elizabeth, who is a kind of trust fund babe who hangs around trolling herself and everyone else on Twitter. Um, and bringing herself to climax while she does so mm-hmm. uh, and has a deplorable boyfriend called Wilkes mm-hmm. and their youngest brother Achilles who spends his time um, ensnaring older men into um, what would you call it well he extorts money from it's them basically doesn't it's he not, yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, all of them in their own ways are doing problematic things and getting themselves further and further into bother mm-hmm. until the point where they all get sort of almost simultaneously cancelled and yeah. have to uh, go live on an island somewhere. Yeah, so and the, so the sort of, to begin with, it seems like the main narrative is the cancellation of George Cleverly mm. uh, for, well, he do, he's speaking to a receptionist and he doesn't yeah. realise that they've transitioned. And he doesn't realise that they are the same receptionist as he knew yeah. as Aidan. He doesn't realise that Nadia... Is the person he yeah. knew as Aiden? That's right. And then yeah. when he asks what's happened to Nadia, Aiden says something like, uh, "Aiden says something like Nadia doesn't exist anymore." And they have a torturous conversation. And then when he goes in to see the person he's visiting, that person explains the situation. He's like, "Well, why didn't they just say that?" Comes outside, apologizes, and then does a tweet saying, "I'm so glad for uh, Nadia that they're now Aiden." Is that right? No, it's the other way around. I'm Aiden so, is now uh, Nadia, I'm so glad and he says. Um, cleverly tweets uh, sort of solidarity with the transgender community and I'm so proud to support um, Nadia in his transition or mm, something like that and yeah. it, so he's albeit with uh, good intentions he's uh, used the wrong pronouns and um, all hell breaks loose yes. on him as a result and then he also makes a gaffe with uh, race as well doesn't he, he? does, does he, is it that he says coloured inst- he's, yeah, he's yeah. explaining so he tries to he, he ref- in a, he is persuaded to do a sort of apology, well, to do an apology, and during that he's, he sort of ends up saying it's absolutely outrageous that this this level of ire and hate is levelled at me because he's a national treasure and he's done lots of work for charity and philanthropy and he says no one's done more work for this group, this group, this group and this group than I have. And he and one of the groups he lists is, uh, he says, coloured instead of people of colour. Yeah. And things escalate for him from there. Uh, and, then, yeah, it's just one thing, one gaffe after another, isn't it? And uh, Yeah. And this book... Like it feels, it feels like deliberately, like it's the real world, but this isn't realism, mm. right? So these these characters are, I think, deliberately caricatures, especially Beverly, I yeah. think, um, and Nelson as well. Nelson's yeah. kind of uh, mental health is is treated is def- very much played for laughs, mm. isn't it? And even just having a character that's called Beverly Cleverly, for example, tells you like don't yeah. don't engage with this or understand it as if it's realism yeah it's not but george is usually given the best monologues yeah george usually has the the moments in the text where he gets to say what's what or to rail against things in a way that makes me think that if anyone is sort of speaking something close to john boyne's Mm. opinion yeah um, or to the author's opinion it's george because george is the only one who's not fully a parody Yes, yeah, yeah. I think that's a, that is right, and I think they do. He does. Quite, John Boyne does quite a good job of making it so that it's clear that George Cleverly does mean well, 
and mm. and does understand quite a lot of these issues. There's one point where he's in a meeting, he's about to get sacked from the BBC, but his producer gets sacked instead of him because he's a national treasurer. But he's talking to like the director general of the BBC, who in this world is a cantankerous old man who's like from World War Two and is sort of Churchillian in his manners, isn't he? Mm. And they, that man says something like, "Well, I don't understand. What, I don't. To be honest with you, I don't even understand why it was wrong for you to have used the word." coloured instead of yes and then George is able to explain to him like no it was wrong yeah that's, it's got this it, that, that word has a context that goes back to segregated mm. spaces in America in the ni- prior to the 1950s and stuff like that so, so he understands what he's done wrong who do you think um, or what do you think John Boyne is targeting here then like what's he what's he saying is what's he diagnosing oh, well I think it's the internet and uh, super fast so social media basically yeah. I think social media which generates conflict which is organised around signalling certain things and just and well engagement is connected to uh, outrage isn't it so the outrage yeah. culture of the internet which is leading these people to destroy each other and the um, character Elizabeth sort of shows that quite well doesn't she because mm. she her alt alt account on Twitter is just free ranging hate isn't mm. it like she will she will go anywhere for a scrap and just like be 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 appalling in in sort of diverse ways that make me think like well would people believe in this mm. twitter account because sometimes she's radically left and sometimes radically right mm. uh, so who would follow that yeah um it it unless they were deliberately following it because this is an edge lord so edge lordy they don't care which edge they're on well, as it, long as it's an edge it makes the point isn't it that she doesn't get engagement until she goes after until if she's attacking celebrities and sometimes it's her own mother and father mm. um it's when people respond to her so when the target responds to her that's when she gets more followers yeah so if people just ignored her she wouldn't get any traction but uh, yeah yeah she, and then, but then, what about her boyfriend Wilkes? He's because horrible. He, yes, but it seems to me like there is some deliberate, there is some more specific yeah. satirical targets there in there Wilkes. Is. Describe Wilkes. So Wilkes is a sort of, I guess, what would have once been called a hipster type figure. Mm. He's very much into the social justice, performing social justice in any way he can. He's very much into his social media. He wants to be a social justice activist influencer really doesn't he yeah um but it it is quite apparent from almost immediately that he is a horrible person actually fundamentally yes hollow cynical narcissistic character and he wants to find a leper colony to go to because it will make really good content for <laughs> yeah. his instagram and uh, yeah yeah and he's aligns himself with basically any cause going for a brief amount of time doesn't he and yeah yeah so i think he is yeah, he's definitely quite a clear, well, like a explicitly drawn caricature of something, isn't he? Yeah, and and I think that he here is it is about social media because he and Elizabeth are both very kind of motivated by likes and followers, but also um, Wilkes's kind of performative social justice and his like the the process of consent that he takes Elizabeth through before sleeping with her. Mm. I think every time. Um, I think there is there is a specific kind of jab at the young and uh, mm. young and woke through yeah. that character. Yeah. What did you prefer, <clears throat> Echo Chamber or Vladimir? They're so different. It's like Vladimir is like watching a a drama, mm. a BBC drama, and Echo Chamber is like watching a Channel Four sitcom. Like they're mm. kind of uh, they're quite different, aren't they? Yeah. I laughed out loud more at the Echo Chamber because it's got jo- it's got actual jokes in it. It's yeah. like there are bits where it's just doing jokes. Um, some of my favourite jokes were, as more and more people get angry at George Cleverly, he, there's one point where he arrives at work 
and there's lots of different groups and he says to his driver like who are they and they're like oh they're all the people who are protesting against you because they think you're transphobic and he's like and them he's like they all think you're racist and he's like and them he's like they're protesting against you because you're anti-semitic and he's like what have i ever said that's anti-semitic and then like there's no he never does yeah but by the end of the book that's one of the things that's recurrently yeah. listed as one of his crimes and then he says who's that group over there and they say that's nothing to do with you they've been protesting since 2017 because jodie whittaker's a female doctor yeah yeah and uh, so there's those kinds of uh, of jokes did you have a, a favorite bit yes well one bit that i think is is kind of brief but quite funny is when uh, elizabeth cleverly uh, is thinking about being a poet and she's looking at her bookshelves that contain the first three volumes of the Harry Potter series, the first two of his Dark Materials, a complete collection of Mallory Towers and a hardback series of classic 19th century novels, not one of which she had ever opened. And then she's got eight books by Katie Price, each one well-thumbed and well-loved. And then, I could be a poet, Elizabeth told herself, refusing to be bowed by her apparent lack of interest in the form. She sat down at her desk and removed a piece of A4 paper from her printer before taking a pen from a drawer. Within two minutes, she'd composed the following. Whenever I can, I think of a man who said I had eyes, the colour of consomme soup. We were in a group, together, in Kazakhstan. She read it back and nodded her head. I mean, that's kind of brilliant, she muttered to herself, making a note to take out all the capital letters when she started her second draft and write justify it so it would look extra poetic. Um, yeah, I can't say I don't recognise what's being uh, yeah. what's being satirised <clears throat> here and the strong implication that there is some poetry that's kind of um, tossed off in two minutes yeah. and then ju- write justified to look more poetic. Okay, finally then. Finally, the plot. And I have to say, this one was my favourite. Really? Um, yeah, I think partly because like, I read it on a holiday and it's the mm. kind of thing you want to read on a holiday and it does have a good plot mm. and it's quite clever. Um, it's the least well it's not at all funny um so it's so it is the least funny of the three like i had questions about it um but i found it the most readable Mm -hmm. and the most enjoyable um and it centers on the story of a writer who's written one book that's done fairly well now he's trying to write another one uh he's got no ideas and no um thoughts about it and then he's a creative writing tutor and his a brilliant story from one of his students and after a few years he finds that that student has died without ever writing that book so he writes it and becomes incredibly famous um the books like oprah's best reads and steven mm. spielberg's bought the f- film rights um but then he starts getting anonymous messages on twitter saying like we know what you did mm. and someone exactly does know what he did and punishes him dearly mm. for it yeah. Yes, and it was described by a literary. It was described as being a literary satire in both the Evening Standard and NPR, which is how it came to be on our radar. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean there are bits that are a bit funny in the first quarter of the book. Yeah, because he ends up. Well, it's working... not a funny book, is it? It's, no, that's okay. But yeah, when he's a creative writer too, and he says that he suddenly realizes they don't want any advice from him about how to get published, because mm. he says like somebody's on the course and they've published loads of books and he's like wow that's impressive and she just says well like, anyone can publish because you write. just pay yeah um and that he realizes that while he's not been looking the whole industry has changed yeah and um, he's in like a small university isn't he like a yeah. small backwater university which over the last 30 years has come to specialize entirely in creative writing because that's the only thing that people still want to do mm. uh, or that the only people who are prepared to pay to come to that university are the ones who think it's going to make them into a successful novelist yeah um which is a, obviously a, something of a dystopian nightmare for him 
Um, and then then he has a very a variety of other jobs. So once he leaves the college, he ends up working at a hotel, doesn't he? Like a writer's retreat place. Yeah. Um, and then he ends up with and a website. that's web... where he finds out that this initial guy mm. has died. And he ended, yeah. at one point, he ends up just with a website where people would send him their drafts and he would send them feedback and they'd pay him for it. And he's like... Uh, the the work that he's writing the work that he's offering feedback on is the worst he's ever read, but the actual transaction of dirty lucre for his for basically his affirmation he likes that the honesty of that compared to what he was doing mm. previously yeah um yeah so that stuff was all good but that's not really what the book is about is it no um so it's it's about the publishing industry mm. I guess it's about the ethics of who gets to tell a story and like. You know, if you if you hear about something and you're a novelist, are you just allowed to write it, or do you mm. owe it to the person who told you the anecdotes? Um, or if it's based on true events, as indeed, I mean, to an extent, every story is because mm. it might have happened or will have happened to someone. Mm. What do you owe to the people in it? Mm. Um, and and who does who does a narrative belong to? To yeah. whom does a narrative belong? Yeah. I mean, so he begins to get harassed by so- someone begins trolling him, don't they, on mm. Twitter, and then that becomes emails, and that becomes threats, and then that becomes more and more. And so he goes to try and find out where this story actually came from, where the guy yeah. who originally told it did, and starts getting very close to uncovering a very dark mystery. Mm. Yeah. Because the story is that a young woman became pregnant, her family wouldn't um, allow her to have an abortion. They forced her to go through with the pregnancy even though she didn't want to. She becomes a mother at, what, 16, 17. Mm. She never really bonds with or likes the child and then um, kills the child in a fight and goes uh, just when the child is about to go start um, university. So she cunningly takes her daughter's place and goes to uni like she was never able to because of the baby. Um, And that's the plot of the novel, which in the world of this novel makes a man like a millionaire um, gets him un- unheard of wealth riches fame and celebrity and maybe maybe there's like more than that it's not a bad story mm. but the issue is like if if a big part of your narrative hinges on the fact that this is the best plot ever mm. then you have to either not show it or you have to or 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 else why wouldn't why don't you just write that plot if you think it's so good or are you asking us to all suspend disbelief and agree that in in an alternative universe this would be the best book Mm. ever yeah um because if it is that good then why hasn't jean health well why isn't she on oprah Mm. why isn't this book being made by steven spielberg yeah that said i just did still enjoy it yeah um, it reminds me of uh, that question of like don't show it if it's the best book ever mm. it reminds me of Tristan Shandy where he, one chapter is missing and then Tristan tells the narrator tells us it's because that was the greatest chapter that anyone's ever written and he had to destroy it because he made the rest of the book look bad Yeah. so we can never read it but yeah she does tell us the story in the story um, and all of that is really to allow I think for the finale which we mm. won't say too much about I think we've no, just done quite a few spoilers um, but he ends up being confronted by somebody who is getting revenge on him for having told the story. And they specifically say to him in this sort of violent confrontation at the end, like, this was not your lived experience. This was not your story to tell. Mm. And I think that's what it's about, isn't it? It's yeah. these debates and arguments over who can tell what story and is it a positive representation? Is it a problematic representation? Is it harmful? Is it is all of that? Is it like, true? Who is allowed to tell what yeah. story? Yeah, is it is it true? Um 
Yeah, funny actually talking to Lee and then talking about and then looking at this because this is a case where it in the in the fictional novel the fictional novel and the fictional novel is presented as a fiction, but actually is mm. pretty much verbatim, in inverted commas, real. So, uh, so yeah, wild. Yeah, I think it reminds me of a bit about representation in Vladimir, but maybe there's not really. Oh, what is it? Uh, just when she's talking about her students and how they can only think about things in terms of representation. She really, she I think really do it. That. I came back from teaching a distracted class in which I felt like I was both overly acquiescent to my students' poorly read opinions and overly combative. They could critique only based on representation. They missed the formal elements of a story. Of course, Rebecca is in many ways a story that is erected in misogyny, demonising women, demonising the other. But I was not interested in that for them. I wanted them to see how a suspense was created, how symbols were, well, she says, utilised. Um, how repetition made the ghost of Rebecca rise from the page. Again and again, I told them, you need to see these things, these forms. Oh, they drove me crazy, being so completely obsessed with whether or not people were represented well, wanting every piece of literature to be some utopian screed of fairness. Mm. Um, yeah, that uh, I felt seen. Yeah, that's there. fantastic. I think it is possibly a good note to draw this discussion to a close yeah. on. Is this a utopian screed of fairness? The podcast is yeah. exactly that, yeah. Oh, right, that's, good. That's, I what, hope I, that's so. what I was going yeah. for. Anyway. Isn't it utopian? Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's like 10,000 spoons when you were hoping for max 900. Yeah. That's a, that's a utopia, isn't it? It is. Yeah. A spoontopia. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's all good. Yeah. Three novels. Hope you enjoyed that, listeners. If you have any comments about those books, let us know. Like, mm. yeah, some, some people already have, haven't they? Some yeah. listeners already have. So, yeah, tweet us your responses, your reflections. Your relatives can tell us what they made of of the books if they read them uh, one of them did it, didn't they yeah. yeah and um and yeah and if you enjoyed doing that we can do more reads in the future i think setting three is was over ambitious mm. i think next time we'll just do one like a normal read <laughs> <laughs> excellent so i think that's it we can yeah i think that's everything thanks everyone for listening to our big, old, big, old, epi- big old october episode. episode of the podcast and um yeah if you liked what you heard please do give us a yell at satire no more at gmail.com at yep. talk about satire on instagram at satire no more on twitter and uh, should we just, and just do, go? We'll go away. Do yeah. a shout out for our primo subscribers that you've made up because we haven't got primo and we haven't got any subscribers. Well, people can decide. Oh, so if can they... I just say, other podcasts say this. We should say this. Can you like and subscribe on on a platform, please? Yes, yeah, of course you can. Yeah, yeah that, can you, that... could you? No, I'm saying like to <laughs> listeners, please, could you do yeah. that? We've got uh, two. And that's a good thing. Yeah, we need more reviews. Uh, although at the moment we've got so few reviews, we've just got a solid five out of five. Yeah, rating, so but, don't uh, mess it up for us. But, but yeah, yeah. So, and and thanks to our premier subscribers: Jezebel Copras, Guy Incognito, Timmy Table, Woody T Nelson, and uh, Chloe Venrock. How many of those exist? None. Good. Okay. Mm-hmm.